Now they are in the back. So we're picking up this morning in our study of an Orthodox catechism. So this morning we're going to be covering questions 20 and 21. And if you remember, there's three major sections to this catechism, right? We think of, uh, if you want to think of them with G's, uh, guilt, grace, and gratitude. Uh, Or as it's laid out, man's misery, man's redemption, and man's thankfulness. Like it says in uh, question two, how many things are necessary for you to know that enjoying this comfort, you may live and die happily? And there are three. The first What is the greatness of my sin and misery? The second, how I am delivered from all sin and misery. The third, what thanks I owe to God for this delivery. Now we've worked through man's misery, and right now we're going through the second part of man's redemption, or if you want to fall back to the G heading, grace. And that's what we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about and thinking about. Who... Who is the one who can redeem God's people? Who's the one who can fulfill the law, who can fulfill justice, who can satisfy its terms, right? And it, it pointed to a mediator and um, like what, what Pastor Des and, and, and what Arnie were hitting on, right? That this mediator must be both fully God and fully man in, uh, in, in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so... On that tail end, Arnie ended on, well, how do we know this mediator? From what source do we know, right? And it was kind of this little biblical theology, right? Starts in the garden, right? The promise of the seed crushing, uh, the, the, the soul crushing seed of the woman, right? And then, it's, uh, and then its promise is carried in Abraham on. And how there's these, um, uh, then with the law, there was the sacrifices and the temple. And all these are foreshadowing what this mediator will accomplish, right? All kind of looking forward until it's finally accomplished with Christ and then interpreted and explained by his apostles, right? So that's kind of where we end with question 19. And then question 20 and 21 is then going to be like the logical outworking, right? Like kind of like thinking through then, okay, well then if the mediator has accomplished this, it's something that is done, well, does that mean that everyone's okay, right? If, if, if all died in Adam, then with Christ, has he made it okay for everyone, right? And, that, and, and to that answer, that's what we'll focus on this morning. So question 20 then is this. Is then salvation restored by Christ to all men who perished in Adam? Answer, not at all, but to those only who by a true faith are engrafted into or united with him, that is Christ. And so what we'll do is we're going to spend some time working with question 20, and then we'll hop into question 21. And the proof texts were just so juicy. I wanted to really just take some time to work through the text here as they help link together different scriptures that help build this doctrine, help help build, um, build this theology, if you will. So... Um, on your notes, and I, tr- I wanted to help provide uh, some of the passages for time's sake, so I included them here. So uh, what we'll do is we'll start with Psalm 2 in verse 12. Uh, can I have someone be willing to read Psalm 2, verse 12? Kiss the son, lest he be angry and perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. All right, awesome. I love this. So 
Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, right? And Psalm 2 comes after Psalm 1, right? If we remember that great psalm, right, where it's talking about the difference between um, uh, those blessed and, and, and those who are cursed, those who are the righteous, right? And the wicked, right? The way of the, the, the righteous and, and, and the way of the wicked. We have this contrast set up in Psalm 1. And ultimately, in Psalm 2, we have the one who is blessed. The only righteous one. The ideal Israelite. The, 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 the true and ultimate and final son of David, right? The king in Zion in Psalm 2. He is the, uh, the truly anointed one. In Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2.12, it's the section where all the wicked kings and everyone else, by inference, are instructed to kiss the sun and take refuge in him. Now, kissing the sun is an odd phrase to us, right? How many of us hear that and immediately think, I understand that definition? I know as I was reading this, that kind of struck me, right? And we've, we've read the psalm and, and sung the psalm multiple times. But it, it, it strikes us. And so there's a helpful parallel here in 1 Samuel 10.1. When Samuel anoints King David, he anoints him by pouring oil on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed your commander over his inheritance? Right? So we see this idea of uh, kissing the son is this... Um, coming under an acknowledgement of the son's rightful authority. And then notice this in, 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 uh, on your notes in Psalm 2.12, right, where it says, uh, notice the in him language at the end, right? Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. This is takes refuge in the son, right? So this is going back to our question, well, who are those who don't perish in Adam, but instead benefit from the work of Christ, and that is those engrafted or united with him. And we see even in Psalm 2, this very idea that we'll see expounded and really uh, provided a lot of details to in like Romans 6 and Colossians 2 and another text where it expands on this idea of union with Christ. We see it even here in Psalm 2. Now, I want to introduce to you, and I put this on your notes, a technical term. But it, it's, not, it's not for being technical, but it, it, it's for the sake to, to, um, to help draw in some, um, uh, some key understanding. And, and I just want to set the background real quick. Sometimes we can think of um, Christian piety and godliness, right, as, as, as what we do. And, and rightfully so, there is an emphasis of, of the Spirit of God working in us where, where we labor, right, where, where we want to draw closer to the Lord. But that must always be building upon this greater foundation. And a key piece to this foundation is going to be what is understood by this term corporate solidarity, right? The one representing the many, the one for the many, right? And, 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 and we'll see this tied into some other themes like um, uh, substitutionary atonement and justification, right? It, it, will, it will be tied in there. But it's a, it's a theme or an idea that we'll see all throughout the Old Testament and even into the New, right? So this idea of corporate, right, a plurality, a solidarity, uh, or sorry, there's a plurality and then solidarity where there's this unity, right, standing as one or in one. And so um, where uh, 
So you have one who represents the many, just like it puts on your notes there. And, and by way of an example, think of this like a king and his kingdom, right? When you have a king, uh, the, kingdom can, uh, the kingdom can be the king as its representative, or it can refer to the people as its subjects. As goes the king, so goes the people. But, this, but I mean this not by just way of imitation, right? Because sometimes we'll see that in the scripture, as goes the priest, so goes the people, right? But I mean this in, in a more heightened sense, not just by imitation, but by representation. Something that this one does or doesn't do and the relationship it has on those identified and united with that one. So if a king goes to war with another country, the subjects of the kingdom receive the consequences, right? Independent of whether or not they contributed to the rise or fall of that kingdom, right? And that means whether it's negative and the king loses and they become slaves of another country, or if it's positive, right? And the king wins and defends his homeland. The one represents and affects the many. And this is, this is, uh, this is a part of the lifeblood of, of what we believe, right? This is, this is a part of the foundation of what we believe. This one and what he accomplishes. And so like I was saying, this is, this is all throughout the Bible. This idea of the one representing the many, right? And, it, and, and the Bible kind of builds this idea until it's ultimately revealed in Christ and what Christ does for his people. And so the Bible uses different terms or different ways to express this. And what I want to do is, we're not going to be able to look at the passages, but by way of reference, I want to go over some of them with you. So the, uh, first, the Bible uses this type of image with the idea of seed or offspring language, right? So we think of a lot of those texts in the Old Testament, in particular in Genesis, right? Promises made to the seed or to the offspring, right? It's the, it's the same, same idea. In fact, in Genesis 22, in verses 17 and 18, in verse 17, seed refers to the people and that they'll be multiplied as a nation. And then in verse 18, it talks about the seed and how he will possess the gate of his enemies. So it goes from plural to singular. The reason why is because they are identified together, right? The one representing the many, and yet also the many as understood in the one. We see this idea even in the law, the first five books of Moses, where interestingly enough, Israel is given the same descriptive terms in the book of Numbers as Israel's king. So in Numbers 23, Israel is described as a lion and a lioness and the horns of an ox. And then in Numbers 24, it talks about how Israel's king will be greater than Agag, Agag and that this king is also described as a lion and a lioness and the horns of an ox. Right? So we see this relationship. They're being identified together. And it's this idea of corporate solidarity, the one representing the many, and yet a part, as a part of the many. We even see this idea in the Psalms and the prophets, and this even goes to the book of Isaiah, 
right? We think of those famous servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Well, it's interesting because there's a fluidity with how Isaiah uses the term servant. So in, in Isaiah 41.8, Isaiah can use servant and talk about that it's you, Israel, right? My people. But then in other servant songs, like for example, in Isaiah 49, 3 through 5, it talks about this one, this ideal Israelite, the ultimate servant, who it says is the one who will bring back Jacob to God. Now, Jacob being a reference to Israel, the people, right? So the servant there can't be Israel, right? Because how does Israel bring Israel back, right? No, instead it's the ideal Israelite, the true Israel in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the one who brings back Israel to God. So we see this idea of the one representing the many. And even this language found in the Old Testament. And Pastor Des hit on this a couple weeks ago. When we, when we looked at Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, this, this ultimate contrast with two humanities. There's a humanity in Adam and there's a humanity in Christ, right? And it's either one or the other, right? It's, it's either what the work of Adam and what he has, if you will, to use the terms loosely, accomplished, right, by his failure and what you have earned, which is guilt and condemnation, or what Christ, what he has accomplished and what he has earned, right, righteousness, justification, and eternal life, right, to those united with him. And brothers and sisters, so when we think about this, right, and I know I've said this once, but I'll say it again. This is extremely important because we do not want to reduce the Christian life down just to the, the things that we need to do to keep up with, right, to, 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 in, in, our, in our seeking for God. But they must ultimately be grounded on this bedrock of truth, right, and the glory of God's grace in particular in this idea of representation, Jesus representing us, right? And this is tied to crucial doctrines. Like when we think about the substitutionary atonement that Jesus actually suffered and bled and was our sacrifice in our place, right? Justification by faith alone, right? And when this, when this becomes confused or this becomes fuzzy, what happens is the Son loses glory. Not, not loses glory as though he becomes less glorious, but from our perspective, he loses glory because we are taking away, if you will, from, from what we see, something that rightfully belongs to him, right? In his grace and what he has actually accomplished, right? There, there really is, uh, um, when, when these become confused or fuzzy, what really happens is we intrude and we bring baggage and works and other things that really start to rob God of his glory and what he has accomplished for us. So, so, so look with me next on, on your notes in Isaiah 53, right? So, so we talked about this and we'll, we'll hit this quickly because where I want to spend the most of our time is, is dealing with the second question on faith, right? Well then, how is it, right? So this mediator accomplishes this. How is it then that that becomes ours? So in Isaiah 53 verses 10 and 11, and I want you to see something here that, that, that's really beautiful. Uh, can I have a volunteer read verses 10 and 11? All right, Roger. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. 
that he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result, the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Yeah, this is a beautiful text, right? And we, we, we go to this text often. But I want you to notice a couple of things, right? The servant does the work of sacrifice for sin, for atonement, right? Providing this covering and justification, right? Like it says, uh, my servant, he will make many to be accounted righteous, right? For he shall bear their iniquities. But then notice this. Who is it for? Go back to verse 10, right? Who who? The mediator is doing this work for whom? And in verse 10, we have an answer. Look with this in verse 10, where it says, He shall see his offspring. Now, does that not strike you as a little odd that the Lord Jesus, the mediator here, has offspring, right? But it's being used here, not in a physical sense, right? The Lord Jesus does not have physical children, but in a spiritual sense. It's those who are united to him. And so the, 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 the spiritual seed of the Lord Jesus, if you will, are those that who are united to him by faith. So, so we see this idea, who are the ones who benefit from the work of this mediator, from the Christ, from the servant, this, this ideal, the ultimate servant, right, from Isaiah? It's those who are his seed. Now look with me uh, at John 1.12 and John 3.36. Can I get someone to get John 1.12 on your notes and then John 3.36? 1.12, All right. But to all who did receive him, believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. All right, excellent. Crystal. John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains. Excellent, right? And, th- and again, this is, this is answering the question, how are, how, how are we united to him? How are we united to this mediator and the work that he's accomplished for his people? It's by faith. It's by believing in him, right? All right, and then can I get, uh, who can get Romans eleven twenty, And then who can get Hebrews 4, 2? All right. Romans eleven twenty. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud of you. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who received. Alright. Awesome. And so we see in Romans eleven this uh, the, the whole theme in Romans eleven is talking about this grafting, right? And being grafted in. And and the point here is who are those who are grafted in? How are Gentiles grafted in? It's by faith, right? They stand by faith. And in Hebrews 4.2, it's not simply hearing, right? But it's hearing that is mixed with faith, right? Those are the ones who benefit. All right. So I'll ask, does anyone have um, any, any thoughts or questions as we think about... Um, this idea then of what Christ has restored to those who are united to him. Any, any thoughts or comments or questions? Yeah, Anthony. So Ephesians uh, 2 
comes to mind is, uh, so we are saved by grace through faith, and it's not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, so that no one may boast, mm. so that we, you know, it's all that's God's doing, and that we don't become proud, but fear, you know, yes. like, I didn't do this, he did this for me. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah, because it gets our eyes off ourselves just to that point, right? And then God gets more glory as we enjoy all that He's accomplished for us on our on our behalf. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yes. Hey, Roger. What came to mind as we were looking at these texts? If you've ever been in a witnessing encounter, or you see the angry atheists on YouTube, and they say how they're going to tell God and set things straight. And, and argue their case and show God where he was wrong. And I'm like, you're around those people, you want to quietly sort of walk back up a little bit just in case the fire comes down right now. <laughs> but I have an advocate. I have, I have someone who is my refuge. Those people in Revelation, they're going to be calling for the mountains to fall. Yes, hide us. Yes. And how much our Savior. Yes. Not only pay for me, but represents me. Yes. Amazing. Yes. Yes. The confidence, right? Because you, you look at the language, for example, that's used in Romans 8, right? It is like, who can bring a charge, right? You're like, have you looked at my record? That should be really easy and really quick, right? But it's like, on account of Christ, who can bring a charge, right? It just just, just drops it, yeah. Which, which is, yeah, just like flabbergasting, right? Brings out the glory of grace, yes. All right, well, let's go ahead. Let's hop into um, uh, question 21. So I'm going to ask another question, right, to kind of, to kind of kick us off. So when we think about, before we go into question 21, um, so when the Bible talks about faith, right, there's a lot of different ways in which it's expressed or illustrated or connected with other things. And I just wanted to put that out there. Um, what are some of the ways in which the Bible talks about faith, right, in, in, whether it's a definition or things connected with it? How does the Bible talk about faith? Don't be shy. I'm going to start calling people. <laughs> how, does, how does the Bible talk about faith? Michelle. Oh, I was remembering, I was reading the Psalms recently, and it struck me that as we're going like, through this question, Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's this aspect of, of trust, right? That, 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 that is a part of the definition of faith. And then what comes with that, right? The fruit of that. Yes. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, Crystal. I think I see verse 11 why I'm not being able to turn the thing so for the conviction of things not seen. No, exactly. Yeah. It's it's an assurance and it's a conviction, right? It's not it's not just a mere knowledge of these things, but but it is a conviction that they are very true, very real, right? Yeah. What else? Yeah, Dan. God desires us to have a great faith, but he also says uh even faith the size of a Mm, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because ultimately, faith is not the thing that like actually moves and does things, right? Faith is just relying on the one who will do it. Yeah. And no, that, that, that's beautiful. Well, that reminds me of the man where he says to Jesus, "I believe, my unbelief." Mm, yes. Yes. That that in that in the nature of faith, there can be a believing 
And yet in the heart, still, still a division, right? There's, there's still a little doubting, right? Where it's not, it's not a complete or full assurance, right? Even though it's like, hey, I believe, yes, and I acknowledge these things. And yet at the same time, I feel torn inwardly in my heart with these things. Yes. Yeah. Or to word it another way, it could, or, I'm sorry, go ahead, Arnie. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was Jonathan Edwards who had a, um, a sermon, and it was called God Glorified in Man's Dependence, right? And what, what shows man's dependence is faith, right? Faith says God will do it, and God is glorified when he does it, and we marvel at what he does for us, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, go for it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, knowledge, it's not only knowledge, assent, where I surely assent, and then trust. Yes. All three of these are important to true and saving faith. We believe in Christ, we assent, yes, what, he, what scripture says is true, and then we trust him. Yes. We need all three. Yeah, and, and that definition. I would say is is so critical, right, to understand and to know because it it protects so much of the the richness of the heritage that the scriptures have for us, right? And and when those things become blurred or lost, we start to to lose our birthright, if you will, right? Where yeah, we, we, we can go in different directions. So yeah, no, absolutely. That, that's really helpful. All right, well let, let's do that. Let's let's um actually no, I want to do one more thing. So I'm not going to ask someone to come up here, uh, but uh, by, by way of um, illustration, how many of you, raise your hand if you've ever done a trust fall exercise, or were crazy enough to do a trust, all right, I see one, two, three, all right, all right, a couple of you, all right. Yeah, I, I, I can't actually remember if I did a trust fall exercise, um, all right. What, what is that? Oh, we're going to get to that. Yeah. Like I said, I'm not going to ask for volunteers, though. Yeah. Um, so, but, but a trust fall is where someone says, hey, I, I agree that I will stand behind you and you fall back and I'm going to catch you. Right. And, and um, a trust fall is just like it sounds. Right. Where you are, you're, you're, you're leaning and you're depending on the commitment of another. Right. And. And your well-being is in jeopardy if, if they don't pull through, right? And so, but there's, a, there's, there's an analogy where, where it works like faith, right? Because there's this trust from the one who has the strength, from the one who does commit, right? And so uh, a trust fall, it's, it can be a helpful analogy when we think about biblical faith, right? That God covenants with us in his son that he will do good to us. The sun fulfills all that's required, right? And now faith is not this thing where, where we're doing these things and God agrees like, man, that's awesome. I'm glad we, you know, we caught up. No, faith is, this, is, is simply resting, this instrument in which we receive what the sun has done for us, right? And in, in one sense, it's like just falling back, right? You, you didn't do anything. You just received the catch, right? So... Um, yeah, by, by, by way of definition. All right, so now to the, to the catechism. So question 21, what is faith? Answer, 
it is not only a knowledge whereby I surely assent to all the things which God has revealed to us in his word, but also an assured trust kindled in my heart by the Holy Spirit through the gospel, whereby I make my repose or resting in God being assuredly resolved that remission of sins, everlasting righteousness, and life is given not only to others, but to me also, and that freely through the mercy of God for the merits of Christ alone. I will say, this definition, though it be a little bit long, is so beautiful, right? Because it captures very much the essence of faith, right? Faith properly guarded and faith properly defined. And in fact, this kind of definition is, is, is the kind that you'll see uh, as a part of and, and coming out of the Reformation, right? So you have the Reformation, right? Then you have the post-Reformation confessions and, and catechisms, right? Whether it's in England or Scotland or Germany or France or in the Netherlands, right? They're, they're going to use this similar language to describe faith. And this is in contrast with the Roman Catholic um, uh, definitions, right? We th- we, especially that we see uh, before the Reformation and even coming into the Counter-Reformation, right? Um, <clears throat> now, we won't go into that, but, but we will go into more uh, the scripture and building on this definition. So we see it's broken up into five sections, right? You, you see the A and the B and the C and the D. And so what I want to do is I want to work through some of these, these passages, right, that, that you have here on your notes. And then I want to think about some of the importance that's brought out with these definitions, right? Similar to, to um, uh, 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 what, um, uh, what Dr. Cleveland brought out in regards to the, the three aspects, right, of faith, right? There is a knowledge, there's an assent or an agreement with the truth, and then there's this trust, this, this personal trust, right? And we see those as a part of, a part of the three. So, um, Crystal, you hit on this, but let, let, let's go to it. Hebrews 11, and let's read Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3. So, and let me do this. What I'm going to do is we're going to hit the first three. So I, who can get Hebrews 11 on, on our notes, verses 1 through 3? Who can get James 2? And then who can get Psalm 119? All right, perfect. Let's do it. Hebrews 11, 1 to 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. James 2.19 You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Psalm 119 Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. All right, excellent. So we see with these, like we talked about with with, with Hebrews 1, right? There's not only a knowledge and an agreement with the revelation of the word of God, right? By by faith, we we believe and take these things, right? That that God has spoken, but that it's a conviction, right? It's a confidence. It's an assurance that these things are so that they are true. It's not simply a mere knowledge or historical knowledge. And that's, in fact, what James 2 hits on, right? In, in verse 2, verse 19, right? That it is not simply, uh, uh, um, faith is not simply 
a knowledge about the facts, right? Because the demons, they correctly understand the person and work of Christ. If you were to give them an ordination exam, right, they would pass with flying colors. But they don't know the Lord. They don't have true faith, right? It's not simply trust in the facts. It's not a mere knowledge. And like in Psalm 119, right, it's a trust. It's a trust according to promise. All right, so we see that it is, so faith is um, uh, not only a knowledge where we assent to these things, but now to go into section B, right, where where we'll hit on uh, starting with Romans 4, but it is also an assured trust. And those two words are key. And we're going to spend some time thinking about that. Assured and trust, right? And we're going to see how the scriptures kind of bring, bring out this idea in the nature of faith. So let's see here. Can I get some, um, what we'll do is we'll just do Romans 4 to start. Who, who can get Romans 4, 13 through 16? Perfect. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Awesome. All right, look with me in verse 16. There's a key clause here that I want you to see. So after it says, that is why it depends on faith, and then notice this where it says, in order that, right? And whenever you see that, right, like mark it down. This, this, is, this is telling you there's, there's a purpose. There's, there, there is something as a, as a result of this, right? So it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on what? Grace, right? Because you see this strong law-grace contrast, right? In verses 13, 14, and 15. And then in verse 16, right? That's because faith, right? Faith is a response to grace in order that the promise can be fulfilled by grace. Because again, faith is not like this work that we do that God rewards us for, right? Faith is really these these open hands, right, where we receive something. It's not something we contribute to, but it's, it's the instrument by which we receive. And so, um, so, so we see this language, right? Or, or uh, even earlier in Romans four, where, where Paul says, "To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, not counted as grace, but as his due, as his wages." Right? This is gospel logic. It's God's gracious promises of His covenant love in the gospel that require faith, and only faith—not faith in obedience, or faith in submission, or faith in love—in order for us to be justified. Because when it is by faith alone that we receive the promises, we don't contribute anything. We don't contribute anything, which means that it is all by God's grace for us and to us. And therefore, this gives God not just some, but all of the glory. All right, now notice in Romans 5, in Romans 5.1. Let's see here. Uh, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord 
Jesus Christ. Notice the connection, right? Justified by faith. And we could add the word, if you will, uh, alone, right? If if we correctly understand the context of Romans 3, 4, and 5, right? He's been building up this contrast, right? That that, that it's not by the works of the law, right? But it's by faith. And and, and it's setting up this contrast that it's by faith, by faith alone that we are justified. And then notice this, we have peace with God. Now, this will be a familiar text to several of us, right? It's, It's special to us. But notice this this intimate connection between faith and the assurance of the things promised. Namely, justification instead of condemnation. And as a result of justification by faith, we objectively have peace with God and then experientially we experience the richness of this peace in our souls, right? As a part of our Christian life. Now, and I want to say this, because the catechism is bringing this out when it says, um, but that this is an assured trust. So trust is that I am leaning and banking and relying on someone other than myself, right? And this language of assured is talking about that in the nature of faith, there is Uh, to use another word, a confidence, right? A confidence in the one who promised. And not only, like, like we'll we'll get into it in a little bit, that it's not only true, but it is true for me, right? That this is mine in Christ. And I love how the catechism brings this out because there is in the nature of faith A confidence, an assurance. Because it's not just saying that it's true for others, right? But it's saying that this is true for me, right? And so to say that I believe and that I am justified in that very thing, I I am then saying that I have been freed from all my sins. That I have been forgiven and cleared, right? Because Christ came and lived and died and rose for me. Now, we'll get into this at the, at the end in regards to, to the importance, because I want to nuance um, when we think about assurance as it ties to faith. But notice with me in, in Hebrews 11, 11, because I love, again, it brings out gospel logic here, right? And this is just beautiful. Can I, can I have someone read Hebrews 11, 11? Yeah, don't you just love that? The reason faith gives us such confidence has nothing to do with ourselves and what we bring to the table, if you will. Notice the since in verse 11. Since she considered him faithful. And notice this, that she considered him faithful who promised. Right? Are you, are you seeing these connections, right? This goes right back to Romans 4. So that it is by grace and God receives all the glory. Her faith, her reliance, her trust, her leaning, her resting is on the one who is faithful and the one who has promised. And trusting in him and having a confidence that he is able and will do all that he has promised because his character is 
and his promise are sufficient, right? Isn't that beautiful how that all ties together? Don't you just love that? All right, let's do this. So I want to quickly hit on a couple and, and bring us down then to, uh, to importance. So real quick, look with me with, with John 1, 12 through 13, right? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And I want you to notice this, right? Uh, And even like we read in uh, John 3 earlier, that they believed in his name, right? Or like in John, John 3, 16, whoever um, believes, right, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ or, or, or in, in Acts 16, right? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. There's this emphasis and importance with prepositions. Now, this is not going to turn into a grammar lesson, but by way of grammar, grammar is important, right? Because what it's doing, what prepositions are doing, it's identifying and clarifying the object who are we trusting in, right? And, and by implication, it's saying we're abandoning self-reliance and we're banking, right, on the one to whom the preposition points, right? So when we say we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or on the Lord Jesus Christ, these prepositions are important. And like we say in verse 13, that this faith is not of ourselves. It's not of man's initiative or will or, or lineage, right? But it's because he has been born, what? Of God, right? It is God's doing, God's action. So, and we think of the trust fall as an easy go-to, right? If the person behind you is giving you a promise and their character is faithful, right? You are trusting in their commitment to you, right? And faith in that way is similar, right? That we are trusting and relying on the Lord Jesus Christ and what has been committed by him to us on the grounds of what he has accomplished on our behalf, right? Him coming, living, dying, and rising for us. All right. Um, Unfortunately, with section C, for sake of time, we are going to skip. um, uh, And and that there is just saying that uh, this comes... uh, through the working of the Spirit. Um, uh, this is kindled in my heart by the Holy Spirit, so unfortunately, we won't have time to, to, to look at that one. Uh, and then, fourthly, um, uh, uh, that this is through the Gospel. And uh, real quick, I'll just read um, in Romans 10, 14 through 7, or actually, I'll just read 1 Corinthians 1, 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God what? Through the folly of what we preach, right? What do we preach? Christ and him crucified. To do what? To save those who what? Believe, right? So so we see these these very clear connections, right? And and these are things that we, we know and understand. That God uses these means through the gospel. And then lastly... The grounds for which we have this confidence in section E, right? Whereby 
if you look on the first page on your notes, whereby I make my repose or my resting in God, being assuredly resolved. And we see again that confidence language, right? Being assuredly resolved, that remission of sins, everlasting righteousness, and life is given not to others only, but to me also. And, and brothers and sisters, if I may, by, by way of encouragement, this is so critical. This is so crucial, right? This aspect of trust, right? And confidence that we have of what God has done in Christ, not in general, but for me, right? Like Galatians 2.20, right? For the Son of God, that, 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 that he came for me, right? That he was crucified for me. And so we see in um, Romans 3, that very idea of what God accomplished in Christ through his redemption and how it's received by us by faith. And how we have those very things, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, everlasting righteousness. So pastorally, I know, I know um, we only have a little bit of time, but I, I want to hit on three important things when we think about the nature of faith. So I know maybe I went a little longer with the definition, but I want to hit on three things that are pastorally important, right? And you see them on your note. Confusion leads to robbery. Now, like I said, the, when, when we're talking about a definition of faith, it, it can seem dry. But brothers and sisters, this is not only our birthright from the scripture, but I would say that was even clarified in the Reformation and after the Reformation. And this is dear to us, right? Because, because confusion to this can rob Christians of assurance, because what we do is we can start to add additional things into the nature of faith, right? And nor do we want to assure nominal Christians who simply believe the facts are true about Jesus, right? Like James 2, but have not believed in him and trusted him and seen Jesus as the one who has lived and died and been raised for them. And not only that, this is instructive with how we increase faith, right? That we point to the promises of grace. So faith grows not simply by pointing to law or commands or what we should be, right? Now, now I'm not saying that faith is not instructed by the will of God in these things. But I'm saying faith in regards to assurance is not strengthened in those things. But instead, it's strengthened by the promise of the one who is faithful who will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. It's a pointing back to the one mediator who stood in our stead. And so when we correctly define faith and we avoid the ditches of faith plus love, right? Or faith and works or um, uh, uh, faith and obedience or using unclear language, like, um, like allegiance, right? We start to lose something at the heart of faith. And when we do, it can rob us of the assurance that we have when faith is understood as a trusting and a resting in what the mediator, Christ Jesus himself, has done for us. So secondly, confusion endangers justification by faith alone. And uh, uh, both Luther and Calvin talk about this. Uh, Gerstner helpfully references this. Uh, when the reformers were reforming the Roman Catholic Church, 
He said, Luther called justification the doctrine by which the church either stands or falls. Calvin declared it the hinge of the Reformation and the main hinge on which religion turns. And here's the danger. Here's where confusion can enter. If we start to define faith more in line with Roman Catholicism by unhelpfully including things like desire, love, submission, repentance, obedience as a part of the nature of faith, we endanger rightly understanding justification by faith alone. Now, please don't get me wrong. All of these things are the fruit of regeneration and a part of our salvation, right? When we think about um, uh, what being born again and what it produces and a part of our union with Christ by faith, right? But are they to be included in the nature of faith? And on this, we must say no, right? We We must be clear. Because in faith, we not only have a knowledge of the truth and an agreement or an assenting of the truth, but a trusting in Christ and receiving him and resting in him. Like our confession says in uh, um, uh, chapter 14 in, in paragraph 2, the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone. Lastly, I'll make one, one, one final comment. What Taia said earlier, right? So when, when we start to include that in the nature of faith, there's, there's an assured trust, right? There's a confidence. We want to be careful that we don't have people question their salvation. Well, if I don't have full assurance of faith, does that mean I'm not a Christian? Does that mean that, that, that I don't believe? No, because even though in the nature of faith, there's an assured trust. There's a confidence in these things. A believer can have weak faith and a believer can have strong faith, right? And so like, like Taia brought up, right? You have, you have in Mark 9, the gentleman who says, Lord, I believe. What? Help my unbelief. Or what is it? Psalm 88. Unite, unite my heart. Why does the Lord have to unite our heart? Because it's divided, right? Experientially. The things that we know and understand, we might not feel or sense or perceive, right? And so, the, um, so, so several have helpfully categorized that while in the nature of faith, there's an assurance of these things. At the same time, it is not necessarily a full assurance, right, that can be gained, right, or that can be weakened. So there's much more that I'd like to say on this, but we'll go ahead and, and, and close, um, uh, clo- close with that. So let's go ahead. Let, let, let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for this time, this teaching, uh, that you would nourish and strengthen our souls. And, and just we would just glory in grace according to the promise and how it's received by faith and how we stand with peace with you. Father, bless our worship. Please be with, uh, with, with Chris as he brings us the word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.